Hey, everybody. <laughs> Stop. All right, guys. Um, so tonight, um, after the service, we're going to have communion. So we're going to have um, a meal together. So everybody that is here is welcome to stick around tonight afterwards. Uh, we would love to have you just kind of hang out, fellowship with each other, get to know somebody you don't. Um, like every week, I uh, just kind of want to talk to you guys about small groups for a minute. If you're not in one, find one, please. Uh, Dave has one. Chris, Stephen has one directly after this service, and then Ryan Rolf has one as well on Wednesday nights. Um, so we also have trash pickup this week. Uh, what time? Friday at 6 at... What? Yeah, show up at 5.30, please. Okay, so Friday night at 5.30 at 706 Campbell Avenue. Uh, just show up. We're just going to go kind of clean up the neighborhood, try to talk to people, get to know um, some people in the neighborhood. So... Um, I'll go ahead and pray and we'll get started, okay? Um, Father, I thank you for this time uh, that you've let us set aside to come together, to worship together, and to fellowship as a body of believers. I ask, God, that um, the message that Davis prepared, let it find a place in our hearts, um, help us to grow through it, and uh, be with us as we, as we worship tonight, and let our hearts truly connect with what you want us to learn. Um, and all of these things I pray in Christ's name, amen. Um, so what's up, Revolution? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So all hipsters and long driving sequences aside, um, yesterday was the 4th of July, which means nothing in other countries, but for us it was Independence Day, right? It was awesome. It's a day where millions of Americans rallied around the collars, red, white, and blue, ate too many hot dogs, drank too much cheap beer, and celebrated the writing of a document that no one has read since high school. Some of you think that's probably too dark. I got it. Whatever. So please prove me, prove me wrong or prove me right. Who in here has read the Declaration of Independence since you've been out of school? Ooh, oh, I got two, two in the back. We have two legitimate patriots in the back. That is what I'm talking about. All right. America. That's what I'm talking about. We're going to get our walkers and 64-ounce beverages and just ride around Walmart. It's going to be great. Um, Uh, Some of you think that I'm being too dark. I'll be the first one to admit, I'm not the most patriotic man in the world. And that's like no slight against anyone. I I genuinely like support the troops, like servicemen and women. Like I love them. I respect them. If any of you out there uh, have that title or anyone in your family, I genuinely appreciate them. Um, But I'm I'm really not the most patriotic man in the world. Um, But the the funny thing is I don't want to live anywhere else either. (laughs) Like it's like a weird place that I'm at in life. Like, I don't want to live in Saudi Arabia because I don't want to get my head cut off. I I don't want to live in England because everyone there is too pretentious. I don't want to live in Canada because, like, who wants to be Canadian, right? Like, even the Canadians are like, eh? Like, "Mm, I don't really don't want to be here either. Um, And I don't want to live in Australia because, like, everything is always trying to kill you. Like, there's, like, spiders the size of my fiance, and I don't want that in my life at all. Um, I'll burn the house down to kill a spider. Uh, But I have noticed this, right? Like, on national holidays, um, people are pretty friendly and people are pretty affectionate towards one another. And it's funny because it's for the sole reason that we like geographically live close together. <laughs> like people will be nice to you because you were born in the same country that they were born in. Um, like I receive like invitations to parties and stuff that like, I don't really like know the people that well, but they're like, Hey, we're both Americans. Come hang out at my house. I'm like, uh, no, but like, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Or like we go to parades and fireworks And people are, like, generally nice to each other, like, at those things. And you'll talk to people you normally wouldn't talk to because we're celebrating our nation. Um, And that got me thinking, 
um, that if we're that affectionate towards one another, strictly because we're Americans, um, how much more should Christians be affectionate and loving toward one another? Um, you know, considering that Paul says we're citizens of heaven, we're united by a, a higher citizenship, um, and we're united together by this great God of love who has displayed his love in dying for us, right? We're all one family with Jesus Christ at the head. So we should have much more affection for each other than we have for people who merely share our earthly citizenship. Um, so that's where we're going to go this evening. Um, we're going to talk about how Christians should love one another. Um, and we're going to see why we should love. Um, and we're going to go scriptural, and then we're going to get um, a little bit theological on, on why we should love one another, um, how we should view one another. And then we're going to look at um, practically, like boots on the ground, what does love look like? What does it look like to love other Christians? And then we're going to take a look at what our motivation for that love is, um, which, spoiler alert, it's the gospel. It's the motivation for everything. It's always the gospel. Um, but here's what's going to be fun. We're going to do it from a passage that, like, you wouldn't expect it from. Like, if I'm going to be totally honest, if I were doing anything other than preaching, like, the word of God itself, I would have skipped this passage because I kind of didn't know, like, why is this here? But we're going to talk about that, and it's going to be cool. Um, so I hope that you guys are going to pay attention and follow along with my argument and see what we can learn from the examples of the people in this text um, and how they express Christian love for one another. Uh, but, but before we hit the text... Um, Let's set the stage for what we're going to read. Let's give you guys some context so we're not just reading this blindly. Um, Paul is in prison at Rome. I've said that a million times. That's where he's writing this letter from to the Philippians. And Timothy is with him. We see that in verse 1. Timothy is with him, not necessarily in prison with Paul, but he's, he's there visiting with him. Um, and here's what we need to know about Roman prison. Historically, Roman prisoners received no care whatsoever from the state. They received no provisions, no food, no clothing, no medical, nothing. Right, you were. It was up to the prisoner or the prisoner's family to take care of him or her as they're in jail. Um, and Paul was not wealthy. Um, he gave up his wealth. His family was pretty rich. Historically, we we can guess he left that because they disowned him whenever he became a Christian. And uh, he he wasn't rich. Timothy was in the same boat as him. And they worked daily as they preached. So like he didn't have a lot of money sitting around in case he went to jail. Um, so the Philippians know this, right? They're Roman citizens. Philippi is a Roman colony. And they know that this is how prison was. So what they did was they sent a man named Epaphroditus, awesome name, Epaphroditus to Paul with a gift. Uh, it was probably money to help Paul. And, uh, and they also sent Epaphroditus to serve Paul, to minister to him, to do whatever that Paul thought was necessary for him to do while he's there. Right? So I just wanted us to remember what's going on historically as Paul writes this letter so that we can read this passage with some context. But let's check it out. We're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. And just so you know, if any of you guys are new and the Bible you have at home is hard to understand or you don't own a Bible, take one of those blue Bibles home with you. That's our gift to you. But it's going to be here on the projector. So let's see what Paul writes to the Philippians. Verse 19, if the Lord Jesus is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you soon for a visit. Then he can cheer me up by telling me how you are, how you are getting along. I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares about your welfare. All the others care only for themselves and not for what matters to Jesus Christ. But you know how Timothy has proved himself. Like a son with his father, he has served with me in preaching the good news. I hope to send him to you soon, or send him to you just as soon as I find out what is going to happen to me here. And I have confidence from the Lord that I myself will come to see you soon. Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He is a true brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, and he was your messenger to help me in my need. I am sending him because he has been longing to see you, and he was very distressed that you heard he was ill. 
And he certainly was ill. In fact, he almost died. But God had mercy on him and also on me so that I would not have one sorrow after another. So I am all the more anxious to send him back to you, for I know you will be glad to see him, and then I will not be so worried about you. Welcome him in the Lord's love and with great joy, and give him the honor that people like him deserve. For he risked his life for the work of Christ, and he was at the point of death while doing for me what you couldn't do from far away. You're all wondering, what am I going to do with this text, right? <laughs> what is there for us to learn? All right, um, let's just sum this text up. Uh, in this passage, we see Paul sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi with this letter. He's telling the Philippians of his plans to send Timothy to them once he knows what's going on with his trial, and that he intends to come back himself if God will permit it. Um, but in the meantime, Paul has decided to send back Epaphroditus to the Philippians because Epaphroditus was sick and he almost died, and he wanted the Philippians to know that he was okay, all right? So obviously, the Philippians had heard about Epaphroditus getting sick, but they didn't know that he was well, and it was bothering Epaphroditus, and he was upset that they were upset. Sounds like a woman, but you know, whatever, that's cool. He was upset that they were upset. Some of you think I'm sexist now, and that's okay. Um, but but that, that's what we see, right? And I just wanted to sum up what's going on here uh, so that we can have a good handle on this. Because often we read or we hear Scripture absentmindedly, especially kind of long passages of Scripture, and we really don't process it, right? So a little side note, whenever you're reading the Bible at home, restating what the Bible, what you just read, is really good. It helps you digest what you just read, helps you think about it. So you should do that whenever you're reading at home. Um, but so now we know what's going on. The question that I, I want to ask is, why is this in here? Right, like that's what I was reading. Like this is like the one like sermon that I was kind of like, Lord, what am I supposed to do with this? Right, like why is this in here? Why would Paul think this necessary? Um, you know, Paul just came off this great passage, right, eighteen verses in chapter two so far that are just theologically rich and teach us a ton about Jesus and implore us to obey Christ, um, standing in awe of God. Right, just theologically rich and, and just gospel charged. Um, why, why this now? Why is this here? Why does they call it a travelogue, right? Why is Paul telling us about his travel plans? Um, first, and, first thing that I want us to consider, and this is pretty awesome to think about because I'm a nerd and I don't know if any of you think this is cool. Like, this is a real letter. Yeah, right? Like, I'm dumb for, like, pointing that out to you. Like, think about that for a minute. Like, this is a real letter. Uh, Paul was a real man, and he was writing to real people in Philippi, Right? Um, this is really big for us to remember. This is real life. This wasn't made up, and real letters contain information. Um, they contain real information that are pertinent to what's going on right then. So Paul wanted to tell them what's going on. He wanted to update them. They're worried, right? And he wants to kind of calm their nerves and let them know, you know, I trust in the sovereignty of God on this. Um, but really, like, what place does this have for us in this letter? Um, what are we to learn from it? How is it relevant to us 2,000 years removed from it? Um, you know, I, I spent some time asking myself that question, and, and I was thinking, you know, a lot of Paul's words are, like, saturated with the sovereignty of God, right? Like, you know, Lord willing, the Lord showed mercy to Epaphroditus. Like, there's a lot of God's sovereignty in this passage, and, and I thought maybe we should take it there. And then I thought, you know, or we could take it about how we should love and respect our missionaries, because um, Paul commends Epaphroditus so much and says, give him honor, give him respect, um, respect people like him, um, and I thought, you know, maybe we, we're going to go that route. And, and as I was studying this week, I saw something in the text that was constant, um, something that stood out to me above everything else, and that's Christian love. That's the one thing that I saw just bleeding through this entire text um, from the examples that these guys were giving us, right? The, the fact that Christians love and take care of each other, that's the hallmark of this whole passage, 
Um, like, let's consider what Paul has been telling us throughout this letter so far. He says, stand united as, as one person, right? Grow in love. Be selfless. Pray for each other. Um, be humble, right? Think of others as greater than yourselves. Live to serve other people. Stand in awe of God, which is loving God and loving people, right? So that's what he's been imploring us to. And then here in this text, we can, we can see how all of this is playing out with real believers, um, in real life, in Paul's day, we can see that, that this message of love and this gospel transformation has happened in these people. Um, you know, th- this text um, that we, we just looked at, seeing how these men um, in this church interacted with one another, really takes this concept of love from the abstract and really gives us a good concrete example um, of, of what that looks like in our lives, right? So here's some like Christian love that we see in this passage. First, we see Paul loves the Philippians. He's writing to them to calm their fears. And the Philippians love Paul. They sent him Epaphroditus with a gift. We see that Paul loves Timothy. He says he's been like a son with me, right? And we see in other letters that Paul and Timothy were like this. Paul brought Timothy to faith, um, and he's discipled him. We see that Timothy loves the Philippians, and the Philippians love Timothy, right? He says, you, you know how he's proved himself. He, he genuinely cares about you guys. He cares for your welfare, um, you know, we see Paul loves Epaphroditus. He calls him a, a fellow co-worker. He calls him a fellow soldier, a brother. Epaphroditus risks his life to get this gift to Paul. So there's mutual love there. And we see Epaphroditus loves the Philippians. He's upset because they're upset. And they love him because they don't want him to be sick and die. Um, so what we consistently see from these men's examples is that believers love each other. And they care for each other's well-being. And, and they're willing to serve one another in any way that they can. Right now, now, now don't, don't get me twisted here. We're called to love people in general. We're called to love our enemies. Um, but we're especially called to love one another who are in Christ. Right? We're called to be family. Right? And if you don't love your family, who do you love? Um, but on what grounds do I say that? Right? What, what grounds do I say that there's a special love that we're supposed to have for believers um, above other groups of people? Because right? some people don't like that. Like they backlash against that really hard, that idea. Um, but uh, it's biblical. Right? Well, why is loving one another, other believers, why is it so important if we're going to call ourselves Christians? First and foremost, because Jesus explicitly commands it. Right? And not only that, but Jesus says that our love for one another is going to be the like, distinguishing feature, right? the indicator of our relationship with him. We go to John chapter 13 to see this. Jesus himself says, So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples, right? So Jesus says that the world around us is going to be able to see that we belong to Jesus by how we treat one another, right? And what I want us to kind of consider within, like, the context of Jesus' life whenever he says that, um, these are some of the last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples before he was crucified, right? And, and notwithstanding that, that Jesus knew he was going to come back from the dead, and we know that Jesus was going to come back from the dead, Remember, Jesus is fully God, fully man. Men, whenever people, right, people in general, whenever we know that we're going to die, we want people to know one thing usually. We want people, we, we, we begin to you know, just throw out as much wisdom as we can, the things that really, really matter to us, the things that we want people to, to, like, to stick with them. And Jesus, we could call this, them, these his deathbed words, if you will. Um, even though we know he's going to come back from the dead, right? And I think that that command becomes heavier and weightier whenever we consider that these are some of Jesus' last words before he died. 
right? But that's not the only place that we're told to show love and humility and service to one another, right? In fact, in many places, we're told that if we don't have love for one another, then we can't truly know Jesus, right? And we're told to like serve each other and be humble and all these things. So let's check out a few more passages from John, all right? Chapter 13, again, verses 12 through 17 says, and, and after washing their feet, He, Jesus, put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. So Jesus washed their feet, which is a slave's job. Jesus humbled himself, their Lord, their master, their teacher. And he did that for them. And he's saying, you're not greater than me. Love one another in this way. Serve one another in this way if you really know me. And we see John keeps this idea going up in his letter, 1 John. Chapter 3, verse 10, we see, So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. And he picks this up again in verses 14 and 19 in the same chapter. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us, so we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth, so we will be confident when we stand before God. Right now, I wanted us to look at those things. Love is so important. Right, love is the, is the one consistent factor throughout the Bible, if nothing else. Right, it's one of the few things that Scripture directly says, again in 1 John, that God is. says God is love. Right, God is the embodiment of love. And he displayed that love in Christ on the cross to us with the gospel. That Jesus would love sinners who rebelled against him so much that he would die in their place to suffer the wrath of God that they deserve. Right? And if we are his, if we have received this kind of love, then we should be displaying this kind of love as well. Right? And when we consider that to love God is to love other people, and we've talked about that a lot, whenever we consider that, then we should be especially loving God's own chosen people. Right? And I'm, I'm referring to Christians whenever I say that. Right? But let's be real for a second. Right? Like, Christians suck. <laughs> Like, you can see it on television, like, and you can, if you've been in the church for very long, you've been a Christian for a while, like, Christians suck sometimes. Like, we suck really, really, really bad sometimes. Like, we may have faith in Jesus, but we still sin, right? We still have all the same sinful tendencies that we once had, right? And we're all truly unlovable at our core. Like, we're still selfish. We still have all this junk that we're trying to deal with. We still hurt people because we're still sinners, Right? And just to be totally transparent, even though I stand up here and I preach love and I preach be selfless, um, I tend to have a selfish streak whenever Autumn and my family need me. Just to be totally real and lay that out to you, right? Like, they'll call me and say, hey, we need your help. And I find myself getting irritated and getting angry with them, even though I know that they wouldn't ask for my help unless they needed it. Right? I, I tend to have a selfish streak in me where I have that holy space of free time that I don't want anyone to jack with. Um, and I also, I have an arrogant streak. Right, whenever people disagree with me, um, especially like 
If any of you have ever been in like a theological discussion with me or like a scriptural argument, like I can be a, a real jerk because um, for some reason I think that I know everything uh, and I don't. Um, but like it's not just me, right? Like everyone in here, like we're all horrible, right? It's, it's true. Like everyone in here sucks. Um, like we are all by nature selfish. I think I just hurt his feelings and I'm sorry, man. I didn't mean it. I did mean it, but I'm sorry. I love you. Um, by, by nature, we're all selfish. By nature, we're all prideful. By nature, we're all arrogant. And a host of other things are wrong with us, right? Coming to Christ doesn't mean that we're suddenly sin-free, but it means that we seek to kill these sinful tendencies in us, and Jesus is going to bring us along, and his Holy Spirit is going to conform us to the image of his Son more and more and more. Um, but because of that, right, because we still sin, we still hurt one another, and it becomes very, very hard to love each other. Um, we're sinners. Like I said, we're unlovable at our core. Our heart is selfishness and rebellion against God, right? And here's what I've noticed. Christians are like way harder to love than non-Christians, right? At least this has been my personal experience. And I I think that's because we know better, right? We know better. We, We have the Bible. We claim it's the inerrant, powerful, living word of God that whatever it says has authority over us. And we read it or we should be. We hear it taught week in and week out whenever we go to church. And yet, People are still jerks. Christians still suck, right? And we know that they know better. And it becomes harder to forgive whenever someone who knows that you're not supposed to use any corrupt speech, but only speech that like builds people up. And we see that, how badly they talk to us, right? We know that we know better. So we all suck. But the ironic thing is Jesus still tells us to love one another. And he knows how broken that we all are, right? So what's going to be the remedy to this? What's going to be the remedy? How are we supposed to view each other? Um, how are we supposed to continue to love each other? Um, to get a little bit theological with it, um, I want us to consider how God views believers, right? People that believe the gospel, people that are Christians. How does God view us? And whenever we get a good look at this, maybe it'll change our perspective on one another, right? The Bible teaches that upon faith in Jesus, we have been united with Christ by our faith, right? That we have received Christ righteousness, and he has received our punishment for sin on the cross, right? Theologians call this the great exchange or imputed righteousness, where he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, that he took our punishment and gives us his perfection, right? Now, whenever God looks at us, whenever it comes time for us to be judged and God sees us, what he actually sees is his son in us, right? This is how we don't go to hell, right? This is how we don't go to hell for our sin, We're not judged off of our lives. We're judged off of Jesus' perfection, right? So there's no wrath for us to suffer because Jesus has already suffered it for us, right? God sees the righteousness and perfection of Christ in us, not our own failures, not our own um, selfishness, not our own sin, right? So, and this is beautiful, and I want us to take some hope in this. As long as the Father views the Son as righteous, and as long as the Father loves the Son, which is forever, he loves us. We're loved and viewed as righteous as long as Jesus is loved and viewed as righteous, right? That's comforting to us. We should take hope in that. It's all about Jesus. It's not about us at all. It's all about Christ and what he's done and giving us his righteousness so God views us as his children because Jesus is his son, right? But in in light of that fact, right, of how God views believers, should we not then do our best to view other believers the same way? Like this was, this was big for me. Like this was like mind-blowing stuff. Um, 
you know, to try to focus on who a believer is in Christ and that the Spirit is bringing them along to be more like Jesus, just like he's doing to you, right? Because we're not there yet. Like, I'm not there yet. I know you're not there yet. Um, Rather than focusing on the faults that each other have in this moment, to focus on who God says that they are and that Christ is in them, right? To keep our eyes on the fact that Jesus died specifically for that brother or sister in order to make them part of his bride, right? We should love other believers immensely when we think along the lines of what the Bible calls all of us who are in Christ, right? So we should love one another and show grace to one another, even when we're hurt, even whenever someone's been a jerk, even whenever we don't feel like it, when it's hardest, if for no other reason than we love Christ who is in our brother and sister, Right? We, we love one another because we love Christ, if for no other reason than that. Right? So we've seen black and white, right? that Jesus himself commands from Scripture, uh, commands us to love. Right? We've gotten scriptural. It's everywhere in the Bible. We could have been doing Scripture for an hour on that, but I didn't want to do that to you. Um, you know, we've gotten theological on it right? and talked about justification and how we're righteous in the eyes of God and that we should love each other that way. Um, but for me, the question always becomes this. Right? What does this actually look like? All right, so I get that I should do it. I understand the mindset that I should have. But how am I actually supposed to do this? Right? How do I love other Christians? Um, you know, and I want to define this because, you know, in our culture, we can take love and basically make it mean anything. And I'm hell-bent on taking love back from the hippies, right? Like, it doesn't mean whatever you want it to mean. Um, But I've drawn four things out of Scripture that display Christian love for one another. Um, You know, three from this text specifically and one um, from another spot that I think needs addressed right now in light of some of the social climate that we're dealing with. Um, So the first thing that I would say, practically, that, that Christians show love for one another, right? Loving fellow Christians means pointing out to one another when we are inconsistent in our faith and in our lives, Right? Whenever we say we're Christians and yet we're in rebellion against God, whenever we say we love Jesus and we're disobeying him, whenever we say that scripture is the authority and yet we disregard something that, uh, that, that the Bible says, right? um, I, I would pose this. It is completely unloving to allow one another to remain in ignorant offense to God. Right? Paul tells us in Galatians 6.1, if we see a brother or sister in sin, right, thinking a wrong way, um, doing something that they shouldn't be doing, um, and then we're supposed to go to them in grace and in humility and in love and correct them. That's something that Paul tells us to do, right? And I think that this is big for us to keep in mind right now because the authority of the Bible is being so hardcore challenged in our culture, even among Christians right now, right? Like I see a lot of um, like pro-gay, like gay, uh, pro-homosexuality Christians. Um, I put that in quotation, um, because I, I don't know how a believer um, says they love Christ and loves Scripture and then blatantly uh, disobeys, blatantly denies what the Bible says, right? Um, these views that, that, that this is okay and that God sanctions it. Um, you know, to be, to be someone who practices homosexuality or, or to be a gay person that gets married, that God would sanction that, um, is not consistent with what the Bible declares about marriage and sex. And I don't have, like, an agenda to get on with this. This is just something that's relevant for us right now. Um, and I've noticed this, that whenever some believers uh, want to say something, like want to correct, like, hey, man, you're not looking at this right. We need to get scriptural with it. We need to bow the knee to Jesus. I see a lot of people saying, um, you know, I feel like I shouldn't or I feel like I can't. Or people say, you know, don't judge me. 
right? That's the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life, right? And I think that we fall short on this, like correcting one another whenever we screw up or whenever we have a bad uh, view of Scripture or a bad interpretation. I think that we screw up in not wanting to go and correct each other because we have a bad misunderstanding of Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, right? King James on it. Uh, Judge not lest you be judged, right? How many people have heard that? Like, or read that on social media. God help us. Like, that is, like, that's more quoted than John 3.16 right now, right? Judge not. Like, I heard this one preacher. I've said it before. Judge not lest you be judged. Twist not scripture lest you be like Satan. Um, I think that's super funny. Whatever. Some of you don't think that's funny. I love it. Um, it's Paul Washer. Dude's hardcore. He'll scare you to death. Make you think you're not a Christian most of the time. He's a good preacher. Um, <laughs> Um, but we have a really bad view of what that means, right? It's not unloving and it's not judgmental to point out sin in one another's lives, right? But if you read the whole chapter 7, if you read that whole bit in context, Jesus is telling us to point out sin to one another, but to do so with an understanding that we are sinners in need of the same grace that they are. Jesus is talking a lot about approach there, right? Recognize your own spiritual need. Recognize your own sinfulness. Um, But I'm just throwing this out there to you. If telling someone that they sin and telling someone that they're under the wrath of God, telling someone that they need to repent and turn to Christ, if that's judging, if that's being a judgmental jerk, in doing that even in grace and love, if that's still judgment, then Jesus judged, Paul judged, Jude judged, James judged, like the, everyone, like all the, everyone in the Bible ever that was like a prophet of God judged. Um, and they were being judgmental, but we know that Jesus is grace, right? So let's just think about that. Jesus was constantly telling people, hey, you're a sinner and I love you. Right, the woman at the well, Jesus says, hey, you've slept with a ton of people and the dude you're living with right now is not your spouse. And then he forgives her, right? He most definitely says, this is sin, this is not okay. Um, all right, so I think that's how we have to approach people, right? I think in the, in the, to quote John Piper, he says, like our war cry has to be, you are wrong and you are loved. Right, this is how Christians should approach each other. Right, in order to show each other love, you are wrong. You're, you're doing this wrong, but I love you, and Jesus loves you, and there's grace, and I'm in need of the same grace that you are. And that correlates right down to how we talk to unbelievers. It's always you are wrong, and you are loved by Jesus. All right, and I think the second thing, um, the second way that we can show love for one another um, is caring for each other's welfare. Right in, in verses 20 and 21 of the big Philippians passage we read, Paul says that Timothy cares about what matters to Jesus. And then right after that, he says, Timothy genuinely cares about your welfare. Right, That Timothy wasn't selfish, but Timothy cared about other people. Right? And Paul's been imploring us to do that this whole, um, this whole book so far. Right? And I think that's what Paul meant whenever he says, be of the mind of Christ. Think of other people as greater than yourself. Care for other people. Right, so we can see from this that Timothy cared for other people and he cared about what Jesus cared about. So we must care about other people. We have to be worried about what they're worried about. We have to pray with them. We have to care for their welfare. Right? And Paul also says that uh, in verse 27 that, Epaphrodi- that had Epaphroditus died, that we would have sorrow upon sorrow. Right? So we can, or that he would have had sorrow upon sorrow. So we can see that Paul wasn't just concerned for other believers' spiritual welfare, but he cared um, for their physical being as well. He cared about the whole man, everything. Right? And Christians are to value the whole person and their physical needs right? and their ailments. We're supposed to be worried about the whole person. Right? So that's another way that we care for each other, is, is being concerned for one another's welfare. The third thing 
is that loving other Christians um, must mean, right, in light of that, if we care for one another's welfare, then loving other Christians must mean that we are willing to be inconvenienced for their sake, right? Paul could have used Epaphroditus while he was in prison, right? Paul calls him a brother, a co-worker, and a fellow soldier, and yet for Epaphroditus' sake, Paul sends him home. He cared about Epaphroditus. He knew Epaphroditus was in distress and he loved him and wasn't being selfish, right? Paul could have used him, right? It would have been hard for Paul to say goodbye to a friend that's that close, especially while he's in prison, but Paul wasn't thinking of himself, right? I think often we find ourselves not wanting to be inconvenienced, wanting to be selfish. Like I said, we have that holy space of free time that we don't want people to intrude on, right? But that is ungodly. That's not Christ-like. That's not what Paul's been imploring us to. That's not consistent with the love of God. That's selfishness, right? And, And then lastly, we see that loving one another means finding joy in each other. In verse 29, Paul tells the Philippians to receive Epaphroditus in Christian love and in joy, Right? So this might sound crazy, but we should actually enjoy hanging out with one another. Right? Christians should actually enjoy being around each other. And I've been pushing this really hard. We need to be family. We have to build genuine relationships with one another. We have to be, and I'm self, like shameless plug, right? We need to be in small groups so that we can get to know the people that we worship with, that we can get to know the people that we serve with, right? If we hang out once a week in what is essentially silence, because I have a mic and you don't, and you guys don't talk back to me very often, um, then we're never going to be close, ever. We will never be a family, right? But we should find joy in one another, and that's only going to happen once there's a genuine friendship built, right? And all this hinges, I think, on finding joy in one another. If you don't have some level of friendship with people, I don't think that you're going to care for their welfare. If you don't care for their welfare because you're not friends, then you're not going to inconvenience yourself for them because you don't even know how you should inconvenience yourself for them. And you definitely can't point out where they're wrong spiritually because you don't know them. You're not involved with their lives. And if you do it, you're not going to do it in grace and love and humility because you don't know them to love them. All right, all of this, I think, hinges on that. All right, so those are some examples of what love looks like practically. Finding joy in people, caring about them, inconveniencing yourself for their well-being, and pointing out inconsistencies in their lives in love. All right? But again, the question is, and I haven't fully answered it, Why is this kind of love so important? Why is this the distinguishing mark of believers? Why is that? And this is the conclusion that I've came to. This is the distinguishing mark of believers because love for one another is an expression of the love of Christ shown to us in the gospel. Everything always goes back to the gospel every time, 10 times out of 10. This love that we should have for one another is an expression of the love of Christ shown to us in the gospel. So let's just consider the gospel. I said that we should point out inconsistencies. We should point out sin in love to each other, right? Before we can hear the good news, the law must break us. God's commands must break us. Jesus comes to us and says, you have sinned. You are guilty. You are in rebellion to God. You are wrong. And God's judgment hangs over you. You are condemned and guilty because you have disobeyed. You are wrong. God is not the center of your life. You do not respect him. You do not stand in awe of him. You do not obey him. The law must crush us first. Jesus must first tell us that we are wrong. But then he turns around and says, you are loved. 
and I'll show my love for you. Right? And then Jesus says, he cares about our welfare. He cares about our eternity. He wants us to, to find supreme happiness. He wants us to be in right relationship with him. He wants us to live eternally after this life. He cares for our welfare. He cares for our welfare here, so he gives us the Holy Spirit. He genuinely loves us. He cares for our well-being. And because he cared for our well-being, and because he tells us that we are wrong and that we are loved, he inconvenienced himself. He left heaven, he took on flesh, he became a man and died in our place, took our sin on himself and gives us his righteousness and suffers our punishment on the cross. He inconvenienced himself because he cared for us. And now if we believe, if we put our faith in Jesus, that he died in our place and was raised from the dead three days later, if we believe that, then Jesus says we are his joy. Think about that. We are his bride. He loves us. Even with all of our failures, even with how unlovable that we are, Jesus says, I knew what I was buying on the cross. I know what a screw-up that my bride is. I know how rebellious she is. I know how how much morally she's going to fail, but I love her. She is my delight. I give my life up for her. We are his joy. So the reason that we see all of these people in this passage giving and receiving so much love from each other is because the love of Christ is pouring from them, right? They recognize daily the great love of God given to them and they show it, right? And that's because love makes us move, right? This is the nature of responding to the gospel. Love creates love, If we really understand the gospel, we must love other brothers and sisters in the same way that Christ loved us. All right, so so boots on the ground. All right, this evening as as we have our communion meal after service, um, I want us to get to know our family. All right, I don't want people to eat and dish. I I, I don't want you just to like head out and not hang out with us. Um, I, I want us to get to know one another, to build bonds with each other, right? And if you do happen to know everyone in here, make stronger friendships, right? Get to know people even better because we have to be family, right? And then practically, like something that's not just tonight, weekly, right? Check up on one another. Seriously, shoot someone a text, shoot someone a phone call, Facebook message, whatever it is, you know, how are you doing? Um, is there anything I can be praying for you about? What, how can I help you physically? Like what's going on? You know, create friendships with people, find joy. And the only way to do that and the way to love people and help people appropriately is to be involved in one another's lives. That's what Christians are supposed to be. We're supposed to be a tight-knit community, right? I'm just saying that we must truly and deeply love one another unlike any other group in the world, right? That's what's gonna make us stand out in the world. And sadly, there are other communities, right? I I was listening to an interview from... uh, from a a former lesbian woman who's converted to Christianity, and she said, the sad fact is the gay community loves its people better than the church. There are other communities that don't love Jesus that tend to love the people in that community better than we do, and that is completely unacceptable. Jesus says this is what's going to make us stand out in the world. Jesus knew that. That's why he commanded it. That's why it's so important for us to do this. It'll draw people towards Christ because they see how we love one another. Right? So that's what I want us to do. I want us to be a genuine family. I want us to be a genuine community. Right? And I want us to do all these things with the understanding that Jesus Christ did them first. 
right? Jesus never once asks us to do what he has not done first. All the ways that we are supposed to love each other, Christ has loved us first. So if we're Christians, that means we seek to imitate Christ and seek to imitate his actions. So whoever he loves, we love. And however he loved them, we love them. So my prayer, what I've been praying for us this week is that we would all be inspired by Christ's great love for us, revealed in the gospel to us, right? Like I've said, that's always our motivation for everything. I pray that we would go and build genuine friendships, genuinely love one another. So bearing the example of Christ in the gospel, run with that. Look to that example daily. That's our motivation. And with that motivation, we can love the church like Christ loved the church. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. We deserve hell and you give us Christ. We're unlovable and you choose to love us. God, you've given us a great example in the gospel of how Jesus loves us. He tells us that we're wrong and that we're loved and he cares for our welfare and all those other things. God, I pray that we would take that example and just run with it. God, I pray that you would you would build us up into a community that honors your name and that truly loves one another. Let us take this message to heart. Father, if we don't love each other, we don't have anything. And how can we love people that we don't know? How can we love people that aren't believers, that aren't in your church, if we don't love one another first? God, I pray that your Holy Spirit just presses that into our minds and helps us to be selfless and love one another. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.